keep thinking of discrete measures that act in one place downriver when what we need is um, a lot of uh, distributed smaller measures that are proportionate um, and effective um, across the whole catchment. Welcome to our latest Hutton Highlights. I'm Elaine Maslin, Media Officer here at the James Hutton Institute. Through our podcast, we bring you a glimpse into our world-leading research across food, energy and environmental security. Today we're looking at flooding. It's an issue that's coming up more and more. We've seen major evidence of it in recent months, not only here in Scotland, but around the world. The causes can be oversimplified and the focus on solutions can also be too narrow. So here with me to take a delve into what drives flooding, the impacts it can have, and some of the thinking and solutions around what we can do to alleviate it are three Hutton scientists. I've got Professor Mark Stutter, a senior scientist focusing on river catchment management, Dr. Mark Wilkinson, a senior research scientist in catchment hydrology, and Dr. Mags Curry, a senior researcher in our social sciences team who has looked at the longer-term impacts of flood events on people. So let's dive in. I'll start with Dr. Mark Wilkinson. Why are we seeing flood events happening more? Well, there's two reasons for that. Uh, firstly, um, evidence is suggesting our climate is changing. So we're seeing uh, climate change impacting on our local climate here with more intense flood events um, and more intense drought events. The other reason is land use. So if we put pressure on our land upstream of our catchments or within our cities, then we will see an impact on flooding in cities and towns and along the riverbanks. But floods are a natural process. Um, flooding itself is a more human-influenced uh, occurrence. So we need to also think about how we plan our town's cities and infrastructure better to deal with flooding. Yeah, so a lot of it's about how we manage our land and the areas around cities and even in cities. Yeah, indeed. So it's thinking about all land across the catchment and coasts. Um, so that's upstream, thinking about how the water gets into the rivers and managing that. And then in the cities and towns itself, where um, the rivers flow through um, towns and cities, but also the coast as well, um, with predicted sea level increase um, and more storm surges, that will put impact on our coastal communities as well. Professor Sutter, would you like to add anything to that? So there's, there's two sides to the aspects of land. There's the impacts that we see in the river corridor when areas get flooded, perhaps development has encroached too close to that, that space, or you see the effects of um, the fertile valley bottom farmland being flooded temporarily. Um, but then there's the, the effects of the whole wider catchment aspect. So where the rain hits the ground, that all contributes to river flow and the, the speed of that runoff um, is important in determining the, the effects of flood um, and the way that flood um, propagates down the river system and causes effects in the, in the lower reaches. Yeah. And what are the traditional measures for trying to mitigate or slow down flooding and why are these not working? Well, the traditional measures are working. The, the problem here is um, funding available. And if we had a, a bottomless pot of cash, um, we could be able to solve most of the link through traditional methods. But with extremes, the only thing we can do is build our walls higher or um, um, more further around our towns and cities. Um, and there isn't enough money to do that. And it's, it's a tricky balancing pot for governments because you have other things like the NHS, education, all battling for money. So with a small pot of money, you have to think strategically where and what you manage with traditional. But then think outside the box what other things you can do. So that's more natural flood management, catchment-based approaches. 
or um, more resilience, um, be more prepared for flooding. What are some of the impacts of those failures from homes flooding to runoff causing pollution? So there's the impacts that we think of in um, you know high water levels that have come across homes and gardens and roads and businesses and things like that. Um, and they may not just be instant, they may be a few days, but then they've got after effects of the, the last floods recently washed a lot of soil down from farmland into lower lying urban areas. Um, so that's quite a big cleanup. Um, of course, there's long lasting effects if there's any really catastrophic kind of human stuff, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. But then there's also the effects of um, just loss of resources like soil and fertilizer and, and seed and things like that that are quite expensive and valuable for a, a you know growing food system um, and the farm businesses. Uh, and then there's ecological damage. But in, in a way, um, some effect of natural flooding is that it kind of causes diversity in in habitat so that's that's in a way a good thing and you know and on the whole um, we've got fertile farmland in valley bottoms because of historical flooding so there are two sides of it to consider. Mark you mentioned so that's Mark Wilkinson here you mentioned that there are other things we can do so alternative solutions as well um, could you sort of describe some of those? Yeah, so an alternative um, to complement traditional techniques would be uh, more catchment-based approaches like uh, natural flood management or nature-based solutions. What that essentially means is just holding water better within catchments, so slowing the flow and storing the flow at the right time um, within catchments uh, dispersed in locations on farmland, forests, peatland. And this is an area that we've actually been doing a lot of work here at the Hutton on. Um, could you describe some of that work? Yeah, so we're doing quite a bit of work here looking at adding additional storage within catchments. So creating bonded type measures, for example, leaky barriers. So the idea is, look, floodplains flood in uh, big events, but how can we strategically store water better? Because with climate change predictions, we'll need to store a lot more water within our catchments to manage the flood peaks. And have there been any particular projects where we've actually applied some of these in, in trials like the leaky barriers or working with particular industry to help resolve some of their challenges because this will impact industry and their access to water as well as humans and how it floods? Yeah, I can give two examples. So, um, for example, a Scottish government funded research project called Achieving Multipurpose Niche-Based Solutions, um, funded by Resas, um, is looking how to better design leaky barriers. Um, so this is wood within rivers, and it's quite a common measure being implemented across catchments, but this could be managed better by extending the wood across floodplains and strategic locations. That's one example. Another example uh, through private financing is uh, the whiskey industry is very interested for low flows. So they are looking at measures that can hold water for, and infiltrate water to improve their low flows and temperature resilience at times when they have little flow. Yeah, fantastic. That's interesting. And what are some of the challenges to these approaches? Because um, they can be at a local scale, but in many of these centres, we need to look at a, a much wider, like you say, river catchment scale. So what, what are the challenges to achieving these kind of effects? Probably there are quite a few. Notably, funding is a key one, so making sure there's enough funds. But these measures are quite low cost, so actually the cost of the measure is not too much. It's more about um, implementing and uh, deciding where they go. And then there's looking at um, um, people's perceptions of these types of measures. So moving away, thinking, oh, these are going to flood farmland. Um, but ideally, they don't. They only flood for, say, one day a year, and then the rest of the time, farmland's productive and still can be used. Uh, the third factor is 
probably more institutional, so better working together, being better integrated within catchments. So today we're talking about flooding, but many of these measures have wider benefits for ecology, water quality, soil management. So we just need to work better outside our sort of institutions. So if we talk about flood walls, they're a point measure. But if the rainfall is falling heavily on the whole landscape, then we really need to enact the whole landscape to try and um, do some role in in kind of squashing that that flood peak down. Now, the first line of defence is the sort of um, roughness in the land, like trees and rough vegetation, and the fact that water infiltrates the soil. But when the soil is really wet, you need to perhaps think about storage above the soil. So that's the sort of buns that Mark's talking about. But we're not we're not promoting um, wetting up the whole land because there's obviously a conflict between. Um, holding water in the land and other areas of productive sort of rural um, land use like farming and forestry potentially. So we're talking about strategic placement of things in um, already wet corners and places that are difficult to work whilst, you know, maintaining productivity elsewhere. And as Mark said, it's it's temporary water storage that's really all that's necessary. Um, you know, a couple of days will take um, a lot of burden off a flood peak. But yeah, we can't keep thinking of discrete measures that act in one place downriver when what we need is um, a lot of uh, distributed smaller measures that are proportionate um, and effective um, across the whole catchment. Yeah, dare I mention beavers? Yeah, beaver is, is one option uh, and work we've done here at the James Hutton uh, through the Centres for Expertise in Water. Uh, we reviewed the literature on beaver and showed that they can have a positive impact on managing flooding, but locally, uh, how they work at catchment scales is an unknown, um, but locally they can have an impact. Um, I like to think that uh, the techniques we're using, uh, that we are the beavers, so we are strategically thinking about where to put the water in the landscape and how to manage it. So it's using the philosophy of the beavers, but um, more strategically working with the pressures of the landscape and how they're managed. Yeah, and if we're talking about species reintroduction, that's obviously been something that's been in the news and support for that or not. And that comes to sort of policy and structural challenges in things like land ownership that can be a challenge for this. So how how does that all play in and how do we need to sort of bring all of those together? Yeah, I think it's a good time, especially when we're starting to briefing things like agri-environment measures um, and private financing of measures um, to, to look at how we can more strate strategically place these measures better in the catchment. Yeah, lots of work to be done. So sorry, Mags, we've kind of left you out a bit, but it's important that we come to you as the biggest piece in this is people and those who are impacted by flooding, and which is what you've looked at. Um, so in terms of the human impact, what have we learned from past, hum past flood events? Um, so I co-led the long-term impacts of flooding project um, with um, a colleague, um, Professor Lorna Philmott from the University of Aberdeen. Um, we were looking at how communities in Ballater and Geary were affected in the northeast of Scotland um, after the 2015-16 flood event. Um, so we selected Ballater because it was the first time that it had been flooded in living memory, uh, but Geary had been repeatedly flooded. So we wanted to see how communities responded, whether they had been subject to frequent flooding or whether they'd been um, flooded for the first time and whether that made a difference to their response. So our, our project started a year after the flooding happened um, and we spoke to people a year, two years and three years after they'd been flooded to find out what had been happening. Um, and in the months immediately after the flooding, uh, people were most concerned with things like uh, cleaning up um, and overseeing renovations to their homes, which were really stressful for them at the time. And actually um, adding to what Mark and Mark were saying about some of the like other impacts of 
what the flood water was like as well. We were hearing reports of people's, um, you know, like the oil in the water, um, sewage in the water that, you know, that was in people's houses as well. It's not this, maybe this image of clean water isn't kind of not not right. Um, in the longer term, when people have returned home, um, so the immediate sources of stress were reduced, um, but people were still recovering. Um, some were aware that they had changed how they'd lived in their homes. Um, so, for example, they maybe didn't replace all their belongings or they kept valuables and important documents upstairs if they could. Um, and we found that people felt really frustrated um, regarding kind of perceived inactivity about flooding proposals and defences um, that didn't deal with flooding in the way that they thought the flooding was happening in their communities. Um, and we found that that triggered people's kind of anxiety um, and actually other reminders of the flooding triggered anxiety as well. Uh, for example, seeing it rain or seeing rising water levels, for example. And what can we learn from these findings? What's, where do we take this? Um, so one of the things that motiv motivated our interviewees to be involved throughout the project was the knowledge that we were feeding back our findings uh, to the steering group of the project that included people from um, the Scottish Government's flooding resilience teams and SEPA, for example, um, and the Scottish Flood Forum. So we could attribute more money coming from the Scottish Government to the Scottish Flood Forum to provide support for flood victims. Um, and the and CEPA uh, disseminated our findings uh, to staff. Um, so we were kind of seeing evidence of that during the briefing flooding. We could see that CEPA were doing more localised flood warnings, whereas beforehand they had been doing them Aberdeenshire-wide. They were more localised now. Um, so people pay more attention to those, those flood warnings if they're more localised. Um, the research identified that people who are at risk of flooding can respond to minimise the impacts. And following the first year of the project, we realised that, that our participants had advice that they wanted to give to others who were in a similar situation and that they'd wished they'd been given at the time. Um, so we devised some recommendations that, they, that would help for other people being flooded. And these were having a home emergency plan in place, um, which would include what to do in a flood um, and other scenarios such as a fire. Um, checking home insurance flood cover and making sure that any changes uh, to the terms and conditions in the future don't ex um, affect the type of cover you think you have. Signing up to floodline alerts um, because the service is free and messages can be uh, received in different formats like phone or by text message. Um, making use of river level data um, or other publicly available water data because that was found to be reassurance to people. Um, and we also developed advice to statutory agencies and voluntary organisations, um, which included that if there was a future emergency, a wide variety of methods need to be used to communicate with the public. Um, so not just relying on online communication because there might be power cuts and disruptions to mobile phone networks. Um, helping um, householders and communities develop these emergency plans, for example, with the help of local resilience groups. Homeowners often need advice about how they could make their home more flood resistant. So that's stopping the water getting in, but also resilient, so uh, minimising the damage when it gets in. And, yeah, thinking about how community groups, health services and local government could provide opportunities for people to get together after the flooding. Yep. I guess some of this actually applies also to things like Storm Arwen, major wind events. So it's not you could apply a lot of that, not just to flood events, but actually a lot of the more extreme weather events that we're getting. 
Um, yes, yes, that's the case. And actually, um, I said earlier about Ballater um, being a community that hadn't been um, flooded a lot, but because they were already a, quite a resilient community, they were able to deal with the flooding better than we anticipated because they already had certain measures in place. Yeah, so community resilience is really important. So I guess that brings us to what can we society, government, councils do next? Everything is the answer. So it's not just about one solution. It's about thinking about everything in the toolkit that we've talked about today. So whether that's preparedness, catchment-based approaches, or still continue to strategically build um, traditional type defences. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the catchment measures only back up the traditional defences. Not one of them should be operating by themselves or they, they won't work into the future. Yes, we need to listen to communities as well about what their needs are and make sure that whatever uh, flood plans that are devised fit with um, what their needs are for the wider community. I would say make use of the online river data. It's, it's virtually live. Um, you know, it's almost to the hour live data of rivers and your local river. You can look online if you've got access to the internet and you can see the trend, um, whether it's rising or whether it's falling. And then that's really informative of what action to take. Where and how would people find that? What do they need to search for? Uh, you can find that in Scotland through SEPA, but there are also other um, third-party websites, UK River Levels. And don't forget the storms with no names. A storm naming can be a dangerous thing, um, but there's many events, perhaps a convective summer event, where you get localised flooding, flash flooding in towns and cities. So it's, it's important to remember that flooding comes from all different types of rainfall, not just the strong wind um, hurricane type events like we saw with Babette. Yeah, great. That's important to mention. Thank you, Mark. So that's our time up. I want to thank Professor Mark Stutter, Dr. Mark Wilkinson and Dr. Mags Curry for their time. Thank you also to you, the listeners, for joining us. We hope this episode gives you a better idea of what's happening when we experience flood events and why. Do like and share the podcast and, of course, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Just search Hutton Highlights Podcast. Until next time, stay safe.